0: good Jason's here I'm here now that we're all here I need a small break so I can pee I'll be right back <laughs> <Good> <laughs> gracious hi welcome to outrageous a podcast where we talk about race media culture politics and everything in between my name is Chris I'm in New York City and I'm joined by my very best friends Trisha in L.A. Hello. And Jason in D.C. Hey. And this week, we are joined by our other very best friend, Anna. Hi, Anna. Hi. Anna is here because she is an expert on immigration, and she's going to talk to us about it. So, Anna, uh, first of all, welcome to Outrageous. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, Tell us a little bit about you, your connection to immigration, and why we should listen to you on this topic.
1: Hmm. Uh, Well, I am a first-generation Salvadoran American. My parents migrated here during the Civil War. So that lasted from 1977 all the way through 1992. My parents migrated here. Um, One was fleeing a deadbeat husband, and my father was actually fleeing the fact that he was asked to kill part of his family um, during the war. So... A lot of, a lot of reasons. Um, So they met here and my, both of my parents were undocumented until 1986 when ERCA passed. I just remember so vividly that as a child, I had to memorize names and numbers just in case, you know, after school, my parents would have been deported. So there was that constant fear of like, what's going to happen to me once I get out of school. My father passed away in 1986 and during that time it was the height of the solidarity and sanctuary movement in Los Angeles. And so my mother and I became very much involved. We had in my parish Blessed Sacrament in Hollywood, we had a sanctuary. So we turned an old convent and we would host families of of immigrant descent, so Guatemala, Mexico, El Salvador, Nicaragua, any any country that was at war. And what I learned at that time was that people don't just wake up, right? And they're like, oh, my God, it looks like such a great day to just migrate right. Right into the land of opportunities. It's really a thought process and a very jarring one because they're leaving behind their roots. They might no longer see their parents or family members. So it, it really tears apart the fabric of who they are, right? What their roots are. By the age of 15, I was putting together rallies. By the age of 17, I was doing walkouts. And by 19, I had done my first civil disobedience all around immigration or immigrant children because I am one of them, right? I am a daughter of immigrants, very proudly so. I know that some people might see me as an anchor baby, but I see myself as really the essence of what America is right? We all are children of migrants in a way, whether it be first generation or 25th generation, we just tend to forget what our roots have really been in America. After that, I, um, my professional career, I, I've done a lot of social policy work, especially around campaigning. I was the campaign director, the statewide campaign director for the California Dream Act, allowing um, undocumented students uh, state and institutional financial aid. I've assisted around DACA. Um, I was one of the advisors on the community side, not on the uh, actually uh, White House side, just to you know clarify that point. I've always been there in, in, in collecting the stories of what immigrants, immigrant childrens, the desires, their dreams to really be part of our society have looked like. And I've also unfortunately, have had death threats. Right, around this very issue uh, where people are like, well, go back to your country. I was like, oh, God, I'm kind of in it. So I'm just going to go home. (laughs) When it comes to the topic of immigration, aside from abortion, this is one of the most polemic issues of our time where folks that are against it don't necessarily listen or don't fully understand the entire history that goes around uh, immigration and immigration in the U.S.
0: That's really interesting, because that was my first question. When people are against immigration, what does that really, what does that mean when you hear people say, I'm against immigration? Because I mean, we're all very smart people on this podcast. That's ridiculous, the idea that a country can exist without anyone coming in. So what do you hear when you hear people saying, oh, I'm against immigration?
1: There's a lot of things I think that come to mind. The first is, I fear the stranger. Right? I fear somebody that looks different from me. I fear somebody that knows a different language that m- might not understand what American culture looks like. There's, so there's that that initial fear. The second fear is obviously the, the one that we get uh, pinpointed at, right? Which is they're coming to steal our jobs. And then of course, right, when, when we're like, what? Right. But like, I mean, if you're a blue collar worker, right? Yeah. If you're a factory worker, the fear is real, right? Because you are going to be be displaced by somebody who is charging less than you are. So we we consider our jobs, our our value, right? Psychologically, I'm valued through what I do. I'm valued through what I bring into my household, uh, monetarily speaking. And when you're talking about immigration, right, especially when an immigrant's coming in to take my job, while they have less value than me because they're charging less, they can still displace me because they are able to do the same work that I do. And so there's that fear. There's the fear of just the con- the, the people just conquering, right, over a land. So that's where you have the wall, right? And like, it's a dumb wall, first of all, because there's one, it wasn't like there like this... A hundred mile or 50 mile uh, you know an hour wind that just kind of tore up the wall.
0: There was a <laughs> in no. California it, they and
1: were like, sharing
0: well, a video on Twitter of yeah. like people were filming just the wall just falling over: Yeah <laughs> just
1: it was, it was the most ridiculous thing. you know there's tunnels, there's bridges, there's ladders. Um, there's big gaps
0: least, between it, like you can yeah. walk through the yeah. wall.
1: The wall does not stop it. Right, there are definitely laws, but laws can be so inhumane that you you forget that we are we are all human and that there's dignity around what we're trying to do, right? And what an immigrant is trying to do and survive. And of course, last but not least, it's the criminalization. All those, right, bad hombres. If you guys remember that piece,
0: yeah, (laughs) Um, unfortunately. (laughs)
1: well it's it's it comes from like the 1990s right um during the time of, of of the clinton administration where it's like we're deporting these bad men right the people that are drunk driving the people that are hitting their wives those that are involved in gangs that's where that ideology comes from so there's always context to our fear the thing is like how do we dismantle right these concepts and really humanize the aspects around immigration.
2: One thing I struggle with is what should the policy be? There, there are a lot of policies in our country I disagree with, and I have strong feelings about what it should be. I really struggle with immigration. And, and you know, I'm just a couple generations removed from immigrant ancestors as well. And I'm married to a woman, both of her, both of her parents are um, were, were immigrants. And like fundamentally, I'm going to sound a little flower childy, but fundamentally the concept that like human beings can tell another human being that they can't walk from this place to that place. Fundamentally, that's ridiculous to me. And yet I really struggle with like, what's a sound policy if you're going to have a nation and maybe we should deconstruct that. But if you're going to call something, a nation that has geographic borders, then what's the right policy. So, so my question to you is like, if you could write, immigration policy for the united states right now like what would it look like
1: hmm. i have never been asked what my policy would look like i think i'll preface it with this is like what we say and what we share is not what somebody else might think we there are a million people out there with a million different ideas right so policy wise um i'm not suggesting we have open borders I'm open to the idea of open borders. However, I do think that if a person is able and willing to work, if a person is willing and able to pay taxes. Now, let's think about that word, right? Taxes. There's a sales tax and there's income tax and there's a bunch of other taxes out there. And as immigrants, they, they do pay those right? I think that we we need to remind ourselves that they do. So they are already contributing to a society. They pay, if, they pay
2: them and don't get all the benefits.
1: Oh, correct. Of, Absolutely. of the services. Absolutely. And then on, on top of that, if they're able to to work, right, and to provide and to be outstanding members of society, whatever that may mean, it can mean I go to church, I go to school, I, I am only getting a parking ticket, right? I'm not part of any like gangs or, you know, things of that, of that nature. You should be able to stay. Hey, I've been paying. If if I pay my taxes, my income taxes for five years straight, can I be a citizen of the U S can I have a pathway to citizenship? That would be ideal because it's comprehensive at the same time. It's not just opening the doors to the professionals, right? It's allowing folks that can do the menial work that we need to be done to also come in and to be, you know, prosperous members of our society. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the pictures lately, but in California, we actually have all these fires, right? In the central and northern California, and all you see are farmers farmers still there where the quality of air is just horrible and they're picking our fruits and our vegetables they're taking care of our cattle and yet here we are and saying please go home so i mean what does at the end of the day what does my policy look like there's a pathway to citizenship that's what it looks like at the end of the day and it's open to all
0: I feel like when I get into this conversation with people, it very much starts with the economic argument that like, well, if we just let everyone in, how am I going to go to the the hospital? If I have to go to the emergency room, it's going to be clogged full with people speaking different language. You know, it's this economic thing. And like you said, it's always like, well, no, everyone's paying taxes. Like the majority of the people who come here find jobs and pay the taxes. And I feel like what's really behind that is just more about what you referenced earlier. It's cultural dilution right? Like, well, if too many people come in and it's not just America, I mean, it's also, this is the issues they're having in France and England and Germany. It's like, well, if we let too many of them in, what does it mean for our language? What does it mean for our culture? What does it mean for our history? What would you respond to someone who um, throws that out there? Oof. um... Yeah, we ask the hard questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you do, but... There's two types of people, right? The people that are genuinely asking you the question because they want to learn. And then the other person, because they they are spewing their hate and their ignorance or their misunderstanding and don't want to learn and they want to stay sheltered. So all depending, which one of those two is asking the question?
0: That's, oh, now you're asking the questions. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I guess the latter isn't worth talking to, I suppose. They're not worth educating. Yeah. It would it would take
2: no responses going. Yeah, yeah. That, that
0: conversation isn't educating them, right? That's gonna be a journey for them. So I guess it's people who really have that question and have that fear. You know, much like the people who have the economic lead with the economic thing can be educated and be like, that's actually not how it's ha- you don't know how money works. Is there something that we could and I guess maybe the goal isn't to sue those people because there is something deeply I don't know, racist and nativist around the even the expressing the fear that like oh I'm afraid I'm going to lose my culture, but well, um, I mean
3: I think you have to pull back. I think okay. you have to pull back because I think one of the things that Anna said is like we can talk about nation, right? And I think that that's actually what that's about, right? There's this conceptualization about who are we as Americans? Who are we as the French? Who are we as Irish? There is this notion of the immigrant as the other like you're fundamentally not us, right? And so I'm always curious about trying to figure out how we unpack the story of who belongs here, right? Because I feel like a huge part of maybe even the current administration's leanings and the things that really get, generate sort of a passionate feeling in people is really this notion of like, I'm gonna define America in a very, very narrow way such that immigration no longer really makes sense.
0: So how do you address that? That's my question. It's like I'm asking all the questions you're asking. Who are we? What does that mean? Like America, you know, when I was growing up in the '80s, it was all about the melting pot. I remember that. I remember that lesson in first grade, talking about the melting pot of America—that we're all here to be the same. And then the '90s happened in their sort of ham-fisted way, being like, "That's not the way that we're supposed to do this." But it is—it's a concern that people have. And, you know, I am going to walk back my earlier statements. I don't think it's necessarily a a racist idea, but I think it does speak to what you're saying. Like, who are we? Are we just a collection of people who happen to be here at a moment in time? Or is there something that we all share? Because I feel like if we could answer that question affirmatively, like these immigration conversations might go differently. This is just all theory. I don't know.
1: If I may, uh, I'll give you an anecdote. So I was on a show about a few years back and a man called and said, well, I'm anti-immigrant because I'm here in Arizona and I've had this mechanic shop for a very long time. And when the immigrants moved in, my shop went under. I lost my business. All the people that were working for me also lost their jobs. I can't stand them, They're, they're, they're just cheap labor. And then, which
0: did he have right. a question or?
1: Oh, no, it was more of a statement. Uh, okay. That's what I, right. so it's okay. like, <laughs> I asked him. Well, why do you think they're cheap labor? Well, they charge less than I do, they're my competitors, right? And I'm like, well, do you think it's cheap because we now live in a society that says if I can do things cheaply, right, I am able to compete, and that, therefore it is capitalistic, a capitalistic economy. That I am able to provide goods the same way you do, but at a cheaper price. It's all about supply and demand. He's like, yes. Well, do you think that there should be laws that prohibit, right? If it's an undocumented business that they can't charge, right, cheaply, but they have to charge at a medium price, at a uh, that uh, of the same uh, quality that you provide. He's like, yes. Well, they're in their ca- in that case. It's not about the immigrant. It's about the policies that govern where you live. And it is about the, the economic impact that a person c- brings in but at the same time that there's an oppressive economic system that always holds us back. So it's you're pitting the poor against the poor, right? Because you're not seeing a millionaire saying, oh, I hate immigrants. They'll be like, yeah, yeah. But you know, they're working in my golf courses or in my hotels because they're cheap. But you'll see the spew coming from a person of the same similar economic background. And that is because there is an impressive system already in place that pins you and says, you know what, they're gonna take more of that cookie. And it's only a fourth of the cookie, anyways, because the rest of the people have the rest of the cookie. That's exactly how immigration is seen in the eyes of these folks. Right? That's why it's harder to to tell say and and, and, and educate them about the issues. Right, because they're already fighting for the same
2: resources. I'm reading a stamp from the beginning. The author writes very compellingly a history of racist ideas and that kind of thing. And he talks a lot about poor whites during slavery who, when the United States or, you know, this country would expand into new territories, Many times they would go and try to get work there. Poor whites in the South at least saw themselves as having trouble getting jobs because there was free labor in the form of Africans who were enslaved. And they became the poor whites as they moved into the territories. And then you'd have folks who would want slavery to expand into that area so that white, rich white people could continue to have free labor. And a lot of the, the opposition to slavery was from poor whites, but it was not because there was some high-minded reason. It was, we're not gonna be able to get jobs if people can be enslaved here and then what you see that is like you already see the seeds of post-emancipation now the conflict's going to be between you know freed black people and poor whites because like just like you were saying on around the cookie now you have these two groups of people that both do need to be paid who are going to you know compete for this set of jobs and you're going to have unfortunately a lot of poor white people basically become terrorists and and do really awful things because they see themselves as unable to to earn a livelihood.
3: I think I'm really trapped by the immigration question because it feels like we are all trapped and we're always going to go around in a circle. Like It's sort of like organizing, right? Organizing says that you have to come to an understanding about your shared status as laborers, maybe, on a certain level. How do you move someone out of the space where you are seeing the other person as a competitor and not as a fellow human being. That feels like a part of the journey here.
0: We keep coming coming around to that question. We should just dive right into that. How do we...
3: That's
1: the problem. Like we can't get out because all of us in this call are already out of that circle and it's about education, right? And it's about open-mindedness. But when you keep getting media feeding you, you know, misinformation, then you're going to be stuck right in it, right? It's about the have and the have not. So it's harder. So as an organizer, Andrew, I mean, Tricia, <laughs> I can tell you that the first thing that you always have to do is you have to identify your leaders. Right? And who are our leaders right now that are talking about immigration? Not a lot. No. Right? We don't have an MLK. And once we had a Cesar Chavez, he was also against immigration for a while. Do you guys not remember that he even went to the borders and stopped people from coming in?
0: I don't remember that. Is oh. it
3: because is it because he saw it as
1: competitors as well? Exactly because yeah. because the farm workers, right? And I, I'm good friends with the family, so maybe I should talk as much. <laughs> but here's the thing: like he did it temporarily because he understood that. If new immigrants, if new workers were going to come in and being paid at a cheaper price than their current farm workers, then uh, the movement would be pretty much, you know, obsolete, right? They were replaceable. And what he was trying to do is like any farm worker that comes in must be paid at a living wage, must be treated, you know, with dignity, with kindness. You need to provide water. You need to provide shade. And all these other arguments right along the way, so he went to the border and stopped them from coming in. So in many ways, like the way that, he, he, that Cesar Chavez is taught in some of the classrooms is that he was anti-immigrant. No, he was anti-immigrant in that moment, in that, in that particular moment in time. You know, he was also organizing in Arizona and in New Mexico. And he even went down to Mexico and tried organizing some of the farm workers there. But it's hard. If you look at the, who the leaders are now, nobody's really talking. We don't have an MLK and we don't have a Cesar Chavez around immigration.
2: No, I think you're right. And I, look, yeah. we're in this moment where we have these political conventions. As far as I know, and Anna, you could definitely correct this, but the Democratic Party does not have a coherent position. Mm-hmm. They, they know what they're against. And I agree with them as what they're against in terms of the current administration. Mm-hmm. But there's not a coherent policy that they are pursuing. It'd be very interesting Uh, And maybe, I know this is one of your questions, Chris, so maybe maybe it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this, but it'll be interesting if Biden wins, which I genuinely hope he does, what's the immigration agenda going to be? I really have no idea.
1: Here's the thing, right? Like any party, they have the moderate Democrats, the blue dog Dems, and then you have your progressive right wings. And so you're going to get three different ideas, and in those three different ideas, you're going to get another zillion sub-ideas, right? So, we're not gonna all come together, but as long as there's a pathway where you're over 11 million undocumented families and, and individuals have a pathway to legalization, then that's a relief. Because one of the arguments that we were, we were giving around DACA was like, DACA is only temporary. It's only a relief that is, 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 is impacting only a certain number of students. We don't have that for their parents. So therefore, now you have mixed status families where you have an undocumented parent, a DACA sibling, and then a, a U.S. born sibling, right? So the U.S. born sibling is left without a lot of their family members should something happen to DACA or should their parents be def- deported, right? So you're tearing this family apart. What's the status of DACA now? So DACA was re-implemented by the Supreme Court but it in its argument it allowed for the administration to come back and say well if you want to close it down you have to close it down properly so the administration has decided to put in papers to close it down properly mm. but meanwhile you're allowed to renew Technically, through the court, you are allowed, if if you're a new DACA student, you're allowed to submit. Uh, We don't recommend it just because the new administration is also trying not to accept those applications.
3: So, your recourse is to just keep waiting and hoping for the best.
1: That's all you can do. Mm
0: -hmm. So, immigration is really about labor, right? If we had, if the labor laws were improved, if it was, just stick with me for a second if you had to pay anyone working for you $10 an hour, countrywide, like you could not pay someone less than that, then some of these issues would evaporate, right? It wouldn't necessarily be about cheap labor and competition who can work cheaper if if everyone could make a base minimum wage. You know, what it is, is that people are coming to this country and then people who own the means of production are just exploiting them.
2: Isn't it, On the but, isn't it though, I feel like it's a little more complicated. and, and oh, It's far more complicated well, than I just said, but but, but that's we, it. We, you know, there are a lot of people, I think, who come here because they're fleeing from something terrible. It's not always economic. Now, when they get here, maybe because of what you just laid out, Chris, because we, we have an economy where there are lots of employers willing to hire people who aren't documented and to pay them less than living wage, minimum wage, et cetera. You know, that maybe makes labor possible for people who come here and, you know, don't have, don't have documentation. But I would guess, like, let's say, Chris, we could snap our fingers and say, okay, now everybody's going to have to pay the minimum wage. You can't, you know, employ people for below that. It could be that people continue to come across the border because they're fleeing from the same terrible things. It may just be a lot harder for them to get work then. And then that raises another set of challenges. You're saying no, Anna. So again, please correct me.
1: I, I well, Going back to Chris, right? And then I'll go back to you, Jason. Um, yes, part, part of the, the immigration conversation, right? The immigration context overall, a big chunk of it is economic. But to Jason's point, should we have fair labor law practices, right? Where people are actually held accountable, would that impede an immigrant from even getting work and the answer is no because you have to remember that in the entire like labor sector not everybody is a full-time employee so they could easily be a private or a consultant most of them are farm workers some of them are nannies and housekeepers you know some of them are teachers doctors whatever they're we're all across the spectrum right uh, in the workforce It it all depends on what that policy, that labor, that fair labor practice is going to look like. Is going to say no undocumented person is allowed to work? Because it already says that. Mm. It's already there. Obviously, they're they're working, but we just like to turn a blind eye to it because it benefits the rest of society.
3: Yep. There are these complicated notions around immigration that you're talking about now, we've been talking about for a good bit. Do you think people have an accurate picture in their minds of who an immigrant is. I was listening to a podcast and they were saying, you know, one of the people that are, one of the groups of people who are really, um, savage by sort of the Trump administration are immigrants from African countries. The assumption has been that it's like mostly border immigrants, but, um, and, you know, folks from Mexico or for coming from Latin America, but it's actually a really complicated picture of who the immigrant is in people's minds versus like, what the numbers actually say and who we count as immigrants. Like that's a fantastic idea that like Canadians are immigrants, but we don't really think about them when we talk about them.
2: <laughs> Do you or, think that or like these... you, Tricia, you immigrated here and people probably don't yeah, think that the you know first I mean? thing when they see you.
3: Yeah. Like what what what's that like what do you think are sort of the pockets that people have in their minds of who immigrants are versus the reality of it?
1: Uh, entertain me for a minute. Like don't you think that our, our idea of what an immigrant looks like also comes from who is actually narrating the story?
3: For sure. Yeah,
1: Because at one point, if you guys remember historically, right, it was Germans. Germans yeah. are the dirty immigrants. Then it became the Irish were the dirty immigrants. Then the Italians. And then mm-hmm. whom else?
2: Uh, no one likes Jews. I was going to say then the Jews. My yeah. Friend, yeah. Uh, my How about the Asians,
1: right? We even had the, the Chinese Asian. exclusion Very long time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so all depending who is telling the story and you know, the Latino community got lucky around the 1960s, right? We were no longer like, <laughs> and <laughs> and then we we're all Mexicans to, to that point too, mm-hmm. right? Where so like, many
0: Mexicans, just we
1: are millions
0: really. of Mexicans boiling up. <laughs> Anyone right. who speaks Spanish really.
1: So, but like we all laugh and we're like, sure, right? We'll be hmm. Mexican if that's who you want us to be. You know, because we don't want to tell you like, okay, you're totally wrong. Please look at a map. It's more, it, it goes deeper into that, right? Because we've already been offended. We've already been peeled back to our core of our humanity. But a lot of folks don't know, like I go to Tijuana a lot, right? Because there have been so many immigrants coming through um, and they've been waiting there for quite a long time. But if you go there, you'll realize that it's not just Central American immigrants or Mexican immigrants waiting at the border. You now have a huge Haitian community in Tijuana
3: waiting. That's actually one of the groups that I think people...
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but coming through Mexico, that I wouldn't oh, yeah. have guessed.
3: Absolutely. So they what they do is they, they go
1: down um, either to Central America, uh, and some of them have gone all the way down to even Brazil, gone up through the countries, and then landed in Mexico in order to cross, right? So their stories are wild. I mean, the stories are, just to get there is wild. But can you imagine the desperate situation that they find themselves in, in which they have to go through this journey, that they're not stopping until they find themselves in a secure
3: place. I'll be honest, I really thought that similar to what the trajectory that happened with the Germans and the Irish, I thought Latinos were going to become white. Some have, some can. Like, I I thought that there was going to be a pathway. Some do, right? Some groups really, you know, can go down that road. But I really, once the sort of demographics of America was changing, I thought that we would figure out a way to create a pathway similar to what we had done with the Italians. And the Irish. And we would do a, a sort of switcheroo so that you can earn whiteness so that you could you could get that, those numbers. I really thought that that shift was gonna happen. And so like with the emergence of Marco Rubio, I thought like, here comes this moment where you can, but then I really think that Trump was like a flip for me. When the party just sort of said, hey, we're gonna kind of create this narrative that this group doesn't belong. I was like, but that's one of our, your largest growing group. And you could potentially have white passing immigrants that you could sort of create this pathway to. I really, that was just sort of looking at history and thinking, well, there was a through line of other groups becoming or being We've made to talked, become white.
0: When you look at the history of Australia and America, and because those are countries that assigned whiteness to people who previously they did not, did not consider white, there were reasons why, and they were labor li- reasons, right? There were reasons why they had to make these people white, but also uh, overshadowing all those reasons was a really profound anti-blackness. And so in this moment in time, the labor issues, I, 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 don't, I can't speak to those because I'd have to really study and think about that. But at this point, anti-blackness, while it's still a very powerful force, anti-brownness is really up there. And I'm, I'm not certain that, I'm not certain who would advance the cause for Latinos being considered white in America anymore. I, it just, I think the doors have been closed. There are enough white people and I, I I just I don't see that path for them because I don't think the conditions that existed previously when the Italians and the Irish, and the Jew and the Jews became white I don't think it exists for Latinos in twenty in the twenty first century.
3: But their numbers are. Le- le- their numbers it's not
0: are just le- a numbers game though. It's not just a numbers game in Australia. You know they they decided Australia's Italians were banned at one point. Yeah. But then they decided that they need to let them in because they needed people to build stuff. And it wasn't like there were like millions of Italians who wanted to come. It's just that that's who was available and they wanted to, they needed the labor in their country. It's not a fact that Italians were growing as a population base and they needed to court them to keep power away from Asians, which has always been the problem in Australia. You know, it was, it was really a pointed reason why they had them there. And I I don't think that pointed reason exists.
1: But but in addition to everything that you've said, and there's 20 million different other reasons why, i like to point out that both, all of them, right? Germans, Italians, Irish, they gave up something, right? In order to be white, they became acculturated. Mm -hmm. They became acculturated or hyphened Americans. And one of the things that they gave up almost immediately was one thing, their language. They stopped speaking their native tongue. Whereas Latinos, right, I'm first generation, my kid better learn how to speak Spanish. True. I'm not letting that go because that's part of our roots. I think that we now have a deeper sense of what our culture is now versus what it was then. Or if you knew how to speak your language, you're not gonna show your American born kid how to speak it right, like so, if you look at the the, the Mexican American community born here in the 50s and 60s, most of them don't know how to speak Spanish because they were taught in school not to do that. Where now in schools, it's like, oh, you have to learn a second language, right? Let's do this dual immersion, you guys, which is wonderful and great. But you, we're no longer acculturated, we're no longer what was it? So in the '80s it was the the, the melting, melting pot. pot. pot the yeah. '90s it was a tossed salad. Then in the 2000s it was a mosaic, right? And like, what the hell are we now, right? Because it's it, it isn't what it is. It's yeah. we are we are very unique, right? All of us at this point. Every immigrant. It doesn't matter if you're brown, if you're black, if you're if you're Asian, right? It, it just really doesn't matter at any point. We hold on.
3: To our roots, because that's all we've got at this point. I think that that's the challenge, though, because when I really, when I listen to conservative scholars, that's the shift they believe that has happened. That's made the immigrant narrative so challenging now and so problematic. Is that there isn't an idea that you can assimilate into American culture and give up a thing like that Mm -hmm. has like, and so I guess I can.
1: But the thing is, like, what is America and what is American culture? Because all our culture as
3: Americans, we've adopted from all these other countries. But, but you know what? But you've made that point already. The, mm-hmm. Me- the Mexicans in the 50s saw that. They understood what that was. There was a thing that was American in people's minds, right? And it wasn't the language, right? And so you purposely were like, I'm going to submit to this space. So I think it's really, now I sort of understand the hostility to ethnic studies. I understand the hostility to all of these other things that was sort of like You're going to continue to uh, have an enduring identity that doesn't fully embrace this sort of like notion of what Americanness is. Cause I've seen that come up quite a few times. I have to say, I feel like it came up a lot during the um, Andrew, Andrew Yang, um, Mm -hmm. thing, which is this notion of like, what is the role of immigration and how people perceive um, sort of Asian immigrants versus other immigrants and the assimilationist model. And I think it's really, I I, I I think, thank you for bringing that up in that sense of like, I'm going to hold on to this identity. And so that now makes it really challenging for me to sort of subsume you into this larger group. Because I, I, I think I hadn't really conceived of it that way. I thought of it as like, well, it's a pathway, one, one, one on offer um, that some ethnic groups embrace. Some, um, some white passing groups, I think, embrace that methodology, um, changing mm-hmm. their name. Think,
0: to Anna's point, I think it's getting harder and harder just yep. because the environment has changed. Like the 80s melting pot, like we were told that as yep. children, that you had to, to be American, you had to do this, and everyone was gonna speak English. And the truth is, is that I do know first immigration, European immigrants, and they do not speak French, Italian, whatever. You know, they, They're around their grandparents, they have no idea what's going on. And that really is different from like Black, Brown, and Asian people who emigrate here from other countries. We have to wrap up, but Anna, before we go, can you share with us something you've read, seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see here, read, and experience possibly on this topic?
1: As, as an organizer, as an activist, as a scholar in this area, I, I wanna say that I've experienced that the immigrants that I have worked with, the immigrants that I have had contact with, They may not be American by birth, but my golly, they are American by heart. They love this country. They want to serve. They want to be part of our fabric. And as screwed up as our fabric is right now, they want to help mend it. So they want to be part of the schools. They want to be part of our conversations. I mean, where else are you going to find an undocumented person and say, I want to serve in the U.S. Army, and that's that happens here. Or, yeah, I'm undocumented, but I'm going to be Republican, right? I'm going to be like, oh, okay, let's let's have that conversation, because yes, it has happened. You know, I just wrote a chapter for a book on bridge theology. So, if you don't know about bridge theology, it's really how to find God in all these spaces, right? In it, uh, we really talk about well, how do we really love our neighbor when we're afraid of them? When we're not welcoming. And so I invite folks to either learn about it, read about it, but really become much more informed. And I think that the best way to learn about immigration is through the eyes of the immigrant, right? To really be in solidarity. And if you guys don't know what that word means, it really means you're not you're not walking the walk with that person, right? You're helping them with, you're journeying with. Uh, you don't become a spokesperson for them they have their own voice it's about giving them the freaking microphone.
0: Anna thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about this you are I don't need to tell you because I'm sure you already know you are a gem and you are incredible thank you so much for sharing with us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really had a blast. Jason, you didn't speak much, but I'll just... He never
2: out. speaks much. I felt like I talked a lot today. No, like you were giving me signals.
0: <laughs> I, Jason, whenever I edit this, I always try and cut me and Tricia out. So it sounds like you are the third person on the podcast. <laughs> I felt like have I to talked talk a lot more. today. No, you have to talk more. Even Anna's been here for 25 minutes and she knows. <laughs>
3: And you introduce yourself with, can I ask a question? Yes, you can. Yeah. Let me tell you something, Anna. <laughs> Let,
0: Anna we're just going to talk about Jason for a second. On every episode, whenever we have a guest, he's like, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah, why do you think these people are here? Anyway. <laughs> well, I just think he's being very cordial. He's
2: extremely uh, Very respectful.
1: <laughs> very respectful about the spaces that he's in. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated it. But I, would have liked, I would have liked other questions from you,
0: Jason. Oh. She appreciated it and she gave you a critique. And on that note everybody, <laughs>
3: bye. <laughs> bye. All right.